0: Hello and welcome back to Morris Babes, a Dance Like a Girl podcast. Morris Histories with Matt Simons, part two. Now, quick, first of all, apologies that this episode is a week later than we originally planned. Uh, Unfortunately, myself as editor got a bit tied up with a couple of things in the past week. That's why we're a bit later than normal. Apologies there. Now, second notice is also Connor and myself will be having a little bit of a summer break. So that means that after this episode, the next episode of Morris Babes will be released on the 10th of September, Thursday, the 10th. Just so that Connor and I have a little bit of a summer holiday, a bit of time off and so that we can get ready and make sure that the next episodes are good quality entertainment and listening for yourselves. Right. Well, here we go.
1: So we are going to talk about, I mean, this would be a good uh, split if you wanted to do the, the podcast in two parts, really, wouldn't it?
0: Possibly. <laughs> Hello, past Connor and Ollie. Very smart idea. Yeah. Anyway, so now we are going to talk about Matt's thesis, the title
1: of which is Morris Men, Dancing Englishness, 1905 to 1951. Why do you look so... You
2: look anxious, Matt. you OK. Fine, I'm just having flashbacks to my Viva exam, so don't worry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is is the real Viva now, Matt. You know, that was just a practice. Now, Matt sent me a copy of his thesis, and
1: I'm sorry to say I've only read the introduction and the first chapter, but wow, am I impressed. And from what I've learned about it, it goes through chapters which focus on certain Morris figures in the interwar years, and... Um, how they understand the dance in terms of national identity. So the thesis goes from the first chapter, which is focused on Cecil Sharp and Mary Neal. Chapter two, Rolf Gardner. Chapter three, Alec Hunter. Chapter four, Joseph Needham. And then the final chapter, as explained in the introduction, chats about the perception of Morris by scholars and the public. I don't know much about the concluding chapters. As I say, I've only read the first chapter, but the first question I'd like to ask you is why have you chosen to write about the figures that make up the chapters of this thesis? Quite simply,
2: because they're interesting figures. They're, they're, they're important protagonists to the early Morris revival. And so I I went about it in a, in a sort of imitation of a very outdated style of writing history. That is those, accounts of great people, mm. and that's not a style of history that gets written at all today, for some very good reasons. But as I say, it's only, loosely speaking, it's, it's, it's an imitation of that. And the, the thesis proceeds in a series of what I term intellectual biographies. And I I did this because it actually shows how the folk movement was and and remains largely the same actually more a constellation of people and protagonists rather than any kind of top-down strict hierarchy so my approach was a way of showing how the folk revival was formed of a multiplicity of these interconnected networks and um, orbits if you like um with protagonists occasionally sort of reaching a point of recognition of popularity um, before giving way to somebody else. And so how, uh, it was a way of showing how the the personnel of the folk movement changed over time. And also that its lead and its sort of leading figures uh, were always sort of subject to some degree of, of criticism and that there was no such thing as a sort of what might be termed, um, a sort of Gramscian social, um, or cultural hegemony. Um, and so, as I say, most importantly, though, I chose to write about these people in particular because they are vital to the Maury's revival and to the, the dances and the, the tradition as we understand it today. Um, and three of them, um, were important figures in the formation of the Morris Ring. And they had things to say, not only about Morris dancing, but about Englishness and English national identity was the intellectual subject of my inquiry, if you like. And that Morris dancing was almost at times incidental because it was a way of viewing and addressing this intellectual question, which is um, what was Englishness in the early 20th century? And how did it manifest itself? Um, but I, d- I don't know whether you think it would be useful for me to quickly run through those figures. If you like, yes, by all means. The first chapter um, addresses Cecil Sharp and Mary Neal, because that's where the modern national revival started. Um, you also have to acknowledge the contributions of Ernest Richard Darcy Ferris, uh, the pageant master who was responsible for the Bidford um, Morris Dancers, and also uh, Percy Manning, who was responsible for the revival of the Hedington Quarry Morris Dancers. But the National Revival, as we understand it, was started by Mary Neal with the support of Cecil Sharp, and that happened from the or under the aegis of the Esperance Club, which was a, a club for young women and girls of the working classes of North London, and that was established in 1895 by Mary Neal and Emmeline Pethock. But the other three figures are generally speaking less known. So then there's Rolf Gardner, who was a particularly outspoken and vivacious, angry young man. Um, That's a character you find quite a bit in 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 the early 20th century, those sort of self styled, um, rebellious, angry young men. Um, and he took on Sharp's establishment, really. Um, and he, Gardner, was this sort of self styled enemy of middle class respectability and a devotee of D.H. Lawrence. Um, and Gardner believed that Sharp and his English Folk Dance Society, established in 1911, had betrayed. What Gardner termed as the earthy essence, the sort of the essential earthiness of Morris by imprisoning it in these classrooms. Um, and Gardner believed that the dances should be restored to their place in seasonal celebrations um, in a return to a more ordered um, agricultural year. And so it was a return to a more sort of loosely speaking, um, almost feudal in some respects, um, mode of agriculture and way of living, Um, and this championing of Murray's dancing went hand-in-hand with this work as a pioneer of organic uh, agriculture and his campaign for the allying of forestry with agriculture as um, symbiotic practices. Um, Anyway, then the the next figure is Alec Hunter, who was the first squire of the Murray's Ring, uh, elected in 1934. And he, he was born into a family um, Im- immersed in the arts and crafts movement, and also with occult mysticism, especially Theosophy. Um, and Theosophy was a particular group who believed that um, a knowledge of God, a, a sort of spiritual knowledge, is achieved through direct intuition, um, and almost sometimes through sort of moments of ecstasy. Um, and so he grew up surrounded by art that was imbued by symbols and iconography of this sort of mystic religion, whilst also being quite sort of, um, re- sort of resembling um, the arts of, of William Morris and others. And aged about eight or nine, the, Alec with his family moved to the newly formed Lettruth Garden City. Um, and. They moved there so that they could expand their family weaving works. And once established there in Letchworth, Alec and his later wife, Margaret, really became central figures in the organization of country, Morris, and sword dancing. Um, And these were activities that were at the very center of the civic and social life of this new garden city that was trying to form a new way of living, basically. Anyway, Alec and Margaret later moved to Thaxted um, in Essex where they assumed roles of organisers side by side with uh, the Reverend Conrad Knoll and his own brand of Christian socialism. And that leads us on to finally Joseph Needham, who was this biochemist turned historian of Chinese science technology. Um, And he was a relative latecomer to Morris, joining in the late 1920s when he was in his late 20s. Um, by which time, he was already a respected intellectual and scientist in Cambridge. Um, And alongside his identity as a scientist and scholar, Needham was also a high church socialist uh, and a fellow champion of Conrad Noel's church at Thaxted. And informed by his socialism, Needham believed that the Morris represented an expression of, of English working class culture and in laying out the foundations for the Morris Ring in 1934, he really set out to establish an organisation which could accommodate dancers of all backgrounds and classes, um, which was quite, quite different to how the, the standards of the social demo, uh, demographic makeup of the English Folk Dance and Song Society was at that time. So that's a very sort of, brief overview. Of, of the content
1: of the thesis. Brilliant, thank you very much for that. Now, I can't say how impressed I am with this because it, I, I find it an absolute joy to read. Um, now, a, a, apart from your excellent vocabulary, which I, I mean, I said to you earlier today, my favorite word that I found was amanuensis, which uh, sort of means someone who um writes down dictated things and and handles I, a, I mean you'd be better at describing it than a,
2: a literary assistant
1: yes a literary assistant uh, but just amenuensis lovely lovely to say but I, I find the thesis effortlessly traverses the boundary between immensely readable and scholarly and i really wanted to ask you whether you thought that um morris belonged in the academic domain? Because I'm sure there are some people out there who believe that discussions of folk and Morris really belong to the people and whether making it overly academic leads to too much highbrow discussion over it. I mean, I don't know what your thought is on that.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because um, I mentioned earlier that idea of a bifurcated identity of researcher and of dancer. And I suppose this was made slightly easier because my subject was historical, not contemporary. So I was safely distanced from my subject because even though ostensibly it's the same, I was writing from a historical perspective. So I was writing about people who I'd never met and writing about a context and a time that is not my own. And I think, though Morris should be subject to scholarly scrutiny, that doesn't mean to say that it belongs to the academic domain. It isn't to say that, in the same way I suppose that you could say that studies of, sort of, football or fish and chips or even something so apparently intangible as identity belongs truly in the academic domain. The academy relies on glimpses of these things retrieved by scholars, um, sort of brought in from the real world. And they then reflect on these glimpses. And that doesn't mean that the academic realm claims any special ownership of Morris dancing in the same way that it doesn't claim any special relationship of um, special ownership of identity or football or things that, other things that scholars write about. Um, and so, I think there's, it's just a different way of understanding that, and a different conversation to be had. Um, and so, I'm not saying that there's any better or worse than any other, but it's just different, and I, I think there's scope for that. And within the Academy, and within my writing in particular, I was always quite coy about identifying myself as a dancer in my writing. Um, But in the end I ended up being quite explicit about it and I make it quite clear in my thesis. And though it said the historian must keep some sort of objective distance from the the subjects of their work, they can't exactly efface their own personalities or their own prejudices from their writing. The historian's always there, the historian creates the history. Um, So it's almost preferable to declare your position, declare your prejudices and your background at the start of your writing and be candid about it. Um, but when I say that, that it's desirable to keep a distance, that this in itself is complicated and we're getting back onto matters of philosophy because as I understand it, as a historian more interested in social and cultural matters, you really want to get as close as you can to your subject as possible. I mean holding your subject at an arm's length prevents you from really getting to grips with it in any serious intellectual way. And so in a, res- in a way, my being a dancer permitted me to get closer to the subject because I had a sympathy with it that I wouldn't have achieved th- through solely archival work. But I was always conscious of my own preconceptions as a dancer. And so I just tried wherever possible to prevent these from clouding my analysis and constantly checking my own prejudices Mm. all the way.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great answer. Uh, I mean, having Morris as a hobby, I found it's very easy to get obsessed. I mean, I, I don't know what it is, but it's a lot of fun and it just made me hungry for more knowledge of it, so. I mean, I have a pretty good collection of Morris books and I love reading about,
2: about my hobby and about the history of it and about different analyses of it. it um, <laughs> your, your question reminded me, though, so much of the fracas between Cecil Sharp and Mary Neal, because that's essentially the crux of their falling out in that Neill, from about 1907, only two years after they started their work together, made it quite clear that she wasn't really interested in collecting material in the same way that Sharp was. She was more interested in, um, promoting participation and dissemination and encouraging, um, young people to learn directly from the source. Whereas Sharp was more interested in the sort of scholarly collecting work. Um, and Mary Neal later, um, Became a friend and correspondent with uh, Rolf Gardner, and Rolf was particularly, or um, also, sceptical of sort of academia and scholarship in in Morris dance, and he, he wrote. He wrote this particularly telling phrase that I, I often remember, and he likens the Morris dances of Sharp and and the Folk Dance Society as being like wild flowers. In suburban jam pots and, and vases, where he says they may look beautiful, but essentially you have deprived them of their roots, and they're doomed to die on some suburban windowsill. Mm. And I, I just thought that that was such a, a such a wonderful um, analogy to prove to prove a point. And he, I, I think. The attitude of Mary Neal, and I think some might even acknowledge Rolf Gardner, has almost won out over that of Sharp in that it's more important that when it comes to the performance of dancing rather than about the sort of the finer technical intricacies and detail as laid out in, in the texts. Yeah, no. so. Does Morris belong in the academic domain? well, ultimately no, but what does and but that, that isn 't to say that there isn 't worthwhile work to be done in the academy, um, only that studying and dancing are always going to be two very different activities. no
1: wonderful answer, thank you. Um, and I also wanted to ask because because as, as you said. This thesis is a, essentially a string of what, what you'd term intellectual biographies. Uh, I'd like to ask whether you were influenced by any biographies you've read or particularly enjoyed, or, or would you recommend any biographies to our listeners?
2: Yeah, well, I, I must admit, I didn't read that many biographies in the preparation of my series of intellectual biographies. Um, but without wanting to be too much of a creep, I should say that my supervisor's own biography of George Orwell, which was published only two or three years before I started the PhD, was a huge influence on me. And I think also, um, especially for the fact that his supervision, much of his supervision was, I think, based on his experiences of writing that book in particular, Um, especially the way that he taught me to weave lives and ideas together. Um, I think at times I probably let the ideas get in the way of the lives. Um, but it often takes courage, I think, as a, as a scholar to, to write plain facts. Sometimes you're looking for something which might seem ostensibly more interesting. Um, but I think I was set out, I set out with the words of another historian in mind, R.G. Collingwood, and he said that all history is the history of thought. Um, and I'm not sure, so sure that I believe that so much now, um, especially having written an intellectual study of Mario's dancing. Um, but I think it was a useful starting point, um, all the same. But yeah, you know, as for other biographies, I think that which might be of interest to the listeners. Assuming they are interested in the history of Morris and the folk movement more generally. I'd point out two, which have been published in the last 10 years or so. Uh, the first by David Sutcliffe, and that's a biography of the Reverend Charles Marson. And Marson was an early collaborator with Sharp on in his work on um, folk song collecting. And also Simona Pakenham's biography of Maud Carpelles, and Maud was Sharpe's amanuensis, um, particularly uh, significant in the field trips to the Appalachians during the First World War. And so both of these are thoroughly readable, and I think indispensable for anyone with a serious interest in the history of the folk revival. Mm,
1: fantastic, and and your supervisor's book is uh, Robert Coles's George Orwell English Rebel.
2: That's the one. Yes.
1: Yeah, I I'd, I'd, I would like to check that out myself, actually. Yeah, uh, but you, you mentioned Marson, and um, I believe the first chapter mentions Marson as a as a gardener of a friend of Cecil Sharp's, and and I can't remember what the friend's name is.
2: No, um, Charles Marson was the friend. The gardener was. Um, John England. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, right. uh, Charles, uh, Charles Marson was another socialist vicar right. based in Hanbridge, in Somerset. And it was in Marson's garden where Cecil Sharp reputedly first heard The Seeds of Love, which was oh. the first folk song that he collected.
1: Yeah. Right. And, and so, um, and Charles Marson, to, said to, said sharp. Basically, come, come, Hear my, my gardener's songs. Yes, which is, exactly. which is a lovely start, really, isn't it?
2: In fact, I think it's interesting to point out the contribution, the enormous contribution of vicars and members of the clergy had to folk song collecting in the early 20th century, because they were, I suppose, the natural um, first point of contact for a folk song collector wanting to. Get the lowdown on potential singers in the parish. Who would know better than than the vicar or or the uh, curate, who would be hearing people sing on a weekly basis? Mm. And so, um, yes, interesting sideline. Uh,
1: and we should also say that uh, David Sutcliffe, the the author of the biography, uh, was instrumental in the website Cecil Sharp's People which is a new database of uh, people Cecil Sharp
2: worked with and collected from, which is is bound to be. It it is an amazing resource. And the hundreds of hours that David put into that project uh, really comes across in the quality. There are more than 700 potted biographies. That is every single one of Cecil Sharp's informants, there on a website. Date of birth, death, marriages, children, working Mm. history. Really, really amazing stuff. It really is. Yes, do check that out, as they say. Check it out.
1: Okay, so this confession is anonymous and we will start with Ollie's moody jingle music. We will start now sometimes i forget which part of the music is which is this the chorus do i figure sometimes they just sound pretty much the same now ollie what do you think of this i i i i can't support it at all although i i would like to go back and ask younger me who had never played melodious whether what he thinks of this
0: yes well of course it comes with the 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 phrase the music will tell you what to do um now, of course that, that only works if you a understand the music and B are listening to the music, um, which I know I fall victim of not purpose, well not knowingly listening to the music. Um, but I suppose it depends. Cotswold it's it, mostly it, it's linear. you know, you know you're gonna do a figure once the figure's finished at sticking time. But when, when you come to something like border, oh, they like to mix things up. They might like to put sticking in a chorus or sticking in a figure. And just... I, I tell you just-
1: I'll tell you what, the, the one thing that does screw me up is uh, when we did the Tinner's the Rabbit in the uh, Sheringham, the Wicket Brew did the music and it was the, the Guinness World Record where we had 369 dancers doing Tinner's Rabbit down the street and um, they switched the A and the B music so that whenever I go to play Tina's Rabbit, I'll do it the way that they did it at Sheringham because that's the way I, I associate it. And then I'll go, hold on, should this be the other way around? Mm. That's, that's probably the only exception, is that Not For Joe will always, we'll always be like, does this sound more like stick today? Yeah.
0: Or should I play it? How do we fancy today? Do we fancy sticking on the A? No, my,
1: my my personal reaction to this is, is this is
0: unforgivable.
1: Um, I, I I completely judge this person. Consider yourself
0: yes. judged. You you have been. Did you judged? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Now, we've, we've mentioned a little bit of this already, but I, I, I believe that the thesis does an extremely good job of cutting through myth and accepted synopses. And what I mean by that is you've talked about perhaps misrepresentation of Rolf Gardner, Mary Neill, Cecil Sharp, or even Neill and Sharp's relationship. And I, I find that your writing is always empathetic to both truth and the characters it describes. So what I really wanted to ask is when you set out to write it, did you feel a sense of duty to put right certain portrayals of these figures that had grown popular?
2: As a historian, I, I'm bound to duty bound, um, by virtue of my calling <laughs> to write things as, as they were to, to write things as they happened, um, in light of the evidence that's available. So, so far as I, I recognize that, the, there were misinterpretations. Yes, I think I did feel um, a sense of duty to put right those portrayals. Um, so, a successful history project requires both a gap in the knowledge and a source of evidence. Um, and I recognized there was both a gap in the knowledge, not only um, in misunderstandings, but some people were just totally um, absent from from histories of of the folk revival. Um, But also there was a great wealth of archival material out there which hadn't been used to any great extent by scholars of the folk revival. Um, So I thought the conditions were ripe for a reappraisal that was on the whole more sympathetic, while still retaining some degree of scholarly scrutiny. But the availability of primary sources was vital to this project. Just as the scientist has their lab and their experiments, a historian needs the source material. It's the same. It's the same thing. This is the substrate for our craft. Now, it
1: it seems to me that people tend to simplify uh, versions of of these historical figures down to kind of stock narratives and, and probably they work in binaries, so they try and pit Neil and Sharp against each other, and by by creating a binary, probably emphasise certain qualities. And they they probably see, you know, the definition of Rolf Gardner as as an angry young man who was sympathetic to to Germany at, at a time when it was perhaps dubious to be. Uh, these descriptions sometimes become more prevalent than the complexities and the all roundness of of the actual figures in history. So I, I feel <clears throat> you've made a real effort to get uh, a closer, intimate look at the complexities and intricacies of each person and not just defining who they are by looking at them and going, well, they're obviously that, but looking at them going, no, this, this person is far more than, than this.
2: I, I tried to judge people in using the language that they'd want to be used. And Gardiner was somebody who just had no truck in party politics at all. And I know that's the benchmark of a certain sort of right wing. But still, to call him a Nazi, because of his German sympathies, um, is misleading. I said that he was a particular sort of English fascist, which he was. Let's face it, he had no problems whatsoever about strong autocratic leadership, um, which he, he held on to throughout his life. But I just think that he's been, um, even in his own lifetime, the, the victim of, of people who were keen to pigeonhole him in a way that just wasn't appropriate. And the fact that he was under surveillance throughout the Second World War is an indication not only of the fact that he had correspondence with Germans in the 30s and 40s, which was enough to get you um, uh, surveillance at that time, but also the fact that people in in the nearby village suspected him of harbouring German spies. Well,
1: no, as I say, I think you've done, done an excellent, excellent job. I think, um, empathy is a, well, a fantastic tool for the historian to really inhabit the worlds and, and times of, of the, the people that they're studying. Um, and and my next question we'll we'll go on to rather than, uh, just mere biographies, as we've said, you chart how the dance was perceived by each person and what it meant to them and how that informs their understanding of national identity. So your last chapter, which obviously I, I don't know much about because I haven't got here yet, but as you outlined in the introduction is the perception of Morris. So was, was it obvious that that was going to be the subject of the last chapter as, as you went along the thesis?
2: No, I think it emerged throughout the writing, and the final chapter does address perception, but more explicitly it addresses the condescension towards Morris dancers, um, including some of the tropes which are still familiar to us today, those associated with the ideas of Merry England and this rather idyllic view of the past which many of these revivalists held. Uh, So yeah, this emerged throughout the writing of the thesis and I realised I either had to address the condescension as I went along or I needed to bring it together in one place and in the end I did the latter. Um, And I used this as an opportunity to also engage with contemporary literature and criticism. And so I started out with Kingsley Amos' Lucky Jim. and where the eponymous anti-hero, Jim Dixon, gives this disastrous lecture on the subject of Merry England, which he, he didn't want to do, he was forced into doing. Um, and so in a drunken fit, he sort of exclaims that it wasn't at all merry, but it was bloody and horrible. And um, it was a sham imposed by those who deliberately sought to sanctify the past, people like Jim's own boss, Professor Welch. and. Now, Professor Welch was actually a caricature of Amos's own father-in-law, Leonard Bardwell, who was a bona fide real-life Morris dancer. Um, and there are, some, there, are, there are some very candid letters uh, from Amos to, to Philip Larkin, actually, um, including one in which Amos describes his father-in-law being struck across the head during either a stick dance or a sword dance and thinking it enormously funny and the best thing he'd ever seen because there was obviously no lo- love loss between them. Um, and so Professor Welch in, in the, one of the most sort of popular novels of the 20th century stands in as this caricature for his father-in-law and all of those sort of idealistic uh, nonsense beliefs that Amos hated and couldn't stand. And this sort of summed up the attitudes of writers, not only like Amos, but also Evelyn Waugh, who thought the folk dance and the like, even arts and crafts movements, to some extent, were just poor taste in that they sort of obstinately clung to the past, resisting the modern, you know, resisting the the present day. And and so my, my final chapter goes through these criticisms and places the Morris revival in its cultural and literary context in this respect Um, and stereotypes then as they do now to some extent although i think it's a lot better um, painted morris and country dance especially as this childish activity literally because at that time it was so common in primary schools and sometimes just plain silly and how could you possibly take a grown man or woman for that that matter seriously when they were stood there head to toe in white with bells around their ankles, telling you of the vital significance and importance of rescuing the English folk song. And so th- these sort of enthusiasts were p- portrayed as, as cranks actually, which was a, an irredeemable, um, label. There was nothing, nothing good or worthy about being a crank, this sort of self-indulgent, myopic, hopelessly earnest, about the vital importance of their obsession over anything else. Um, Thankfully, I I think there's reason for optimism in that our image (laughs) has improved over the years, um, and that public opinion is generally more forgiving than it it was. Um, But I think it's still useful sometimes and worthwhile to remind ourselves of the origins of some of these caricatures. And so, whilst I, to some extent, defend the Morris dancers against the cruel tirades of of Kings Glamis and evil in war. Um, I, I sort of feel that, you know, Morris dancers can take it. We can hold our own. Very good. No, I think,
1: I think in the simple action of, of the persistence of Morris and and how many people do it and the, the continual intake of young people is, is hopeful and I think that condescension may be there but we're having a good time and the people who look at it and think it's just silly just aren't in on the fun. Uh, my final question about your thesis is because I, I so enjoy reading it and I'd love to see it in a physical copy. Will we ever see the thesis in book form?
2: I, said, I certainly hope so. Um, I'm currently in the process, among other things, of drafting a proposal for a monograph. So keeping fingers crossed for that. So watch this space. Um, in the meantime, um, if, you're, if you'd if you like to read my thesis, I'd be willing to provide you with a copy. So if you get in contact with uh, the Maurice Babes podcast, they'll send your message my way and and I'll send you an electronic copy of the thesis. But also, in the meantime, I'm completing a a chapter for a forthcoming edited volume on English folk performance. Um, And that's a basic overview chapter of the um, Morris revival from about 1885, 86, through to the 1950s. And that's for a volume on English folk performance, which is due to be published by Rutledge in the near future.
0: Wonderful. So, even, so lots to look forward to. <laughs> Wouldn't it be a Morris Bay's podcast without a, a couple of shameless plugs?
2: <laughs> well, right. I was promised those before I agreed to do it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, uh, so well, we,
2: we have one question
1: from our listeners, which is actually from Sally Bird, our last special guest on the podcast, who asks... Which Morris personality from history would you have as an action figure? And what would their accessory be?
2: Well, that's such an interesting question. (laughs) Um, Who would it be? Well, I suppose if you had a a Cecil Sharp action figure, you could have a a bicycle. um, (laughs) Oh, that's cute. Um, And as well as a notebook, perhaps. And and a pipe and maybe a glass of milk because he he didn't drink alcohol. So uh, that's this. It, 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 talk, it, it, talking about sort of um, you know challenging stereotypes. There there I go, I'll tick them all off. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we could
1: go through them, couldn't we? So we have Ralph Gardner with his bag of soil uh
2: because he was he was very
1: what did he go in, go on to do after Morris dancing again?
2: Well, he he was after the Second World War, he was one of the catalysts behind the formation of the Soil Association, yes. among other things. One, so he he was a real visionary. Um, <laughs> and I, I will talk at length about Rolf Gardner because he's somebody who who fascinates me um, endlessly, and. I, I think he he was somebody who adopted some very difficult causes for his time, but in many respects is being proven right now,
1: mm.
2: particularly about agriculture.
1: Well, I've, I've,
2: and of I've, course, all of the dancers should have a change of footwear because it was commonplace in the interwar years to, to wear white plimpsos for dancing indoors and on grass and black leather sole shoes for dancing outdoors, so you could could do that as well. So there's just, there's no end of opportunities for accessorising these um, action figures.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. So, get on it. Someone needs to make these Morris action figures. Is it going to be the ring? Is it going to be the fed? Who's going to be the first? (laughs)
0: Leaving the open out there.
1: Oh, well, you know, well. We're we're late on the party, so. uh or Is it going to be Eftus? I don't know. Oh, who knows? It's... Who knows? Maybe maybe we'll create our own Morris Babes action cool. figures. Email us at yeah. dancelikeagirl podcast at gmail if you would like Morris
0: action figures. Yeah, Morris Babes, know, yeah, Barbie, yeah, Morris Babes. No,
1: no, no. G- no.
0: Galley man, oh, galley man. I tell you what, I was thinking. Press the button on his back, and he does a galley mechanical legs that's what
1: every action figure needs so that concludes our interview with Matt thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast Matt you've been a brilliant guest and I've very much enjoyed talking to you a pleasure thank you very much for listening thank you Matt for joining us on today's podcast how have you found it after listening to our previous ones
2: I very much enjoyed the experience thank you and now I'm just at the mercy of our editor (laughs)
1: Yeah, I know, I I find myself at the mercy of Ollie's editing all the time, but at least he has more time than he did last time.
0: Yes, (laughs) and I'm on earlies at work, so I've got more time in the evenings. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for listening to our second episode of Mara
1: Spade's Dance Like a Girl podcast. Next episode, we will continue talking to the rest of the team. We may do a special episode where we talk to both of our final members or there should or there could be two more episodes please join us for that because it will be fantastic we may even get onto the topic of science and morris and whether there's a crossover
0: certainly and also how knitting and sewing might come into morris (laughs) right yeah do get in contact with us and we thank you very
1: much for listening today and as always keep Keep dancing dancing, (laughs) thank you goodbye